Oh God, you are our refuge. When we're exhausted by life's efforts, when we're bewildered by life's problems, when we're surrounded by life's sorrows, we come for refuge to you. Oh God, you are our strength. When our tasks are beyond our powers, when our temptations are too strong for us, when duty calls for more than we have to give to it, we come for strength to you. Oh God, it is from you that all goodness comes. It's from you that our ideals come. It's from you that there comes to us the spur of high desire and the restraint of conscience. It's from you that there has come the strength to resist any temptation and to do any good. And now as we pray to you, help us to believe in your love so that we may be certain that you will hear our prayer. Help us to believe in your power so that we can be certain that you are able to do for us above all that we ask or think. Help us as we pray to believe in your wisdom so that we may be certain that you will answer, not as our ignorance asks, but as your perfect wisdom knows best. Let us pray. Lord, we do love you tonight. We've been singing that. We believe that you inhabit the praises of your people, and we do believe that it does something for you to hear us say, we love you, but we're much more aware that it does something for us to recenter ourselves, to remind ourselves that our affection is set on you. Thank you for this wonderful place called Nazarene Bible College. It's a beautiful setting, but the real beauty is in the men and women that inhabit this place, faculty, staff, dedicated, well-equipped, seasoned, focused, and then men and women from coast to coast and beyond the borders of this country come here for preparation that will serve them through a lifetime. I pray your blessings for Nazarene Bible College. Watch over this place, guide, guard, protect, bring resources to bear to accomplish your will here. And may there just be something about an NBC graduate that is winsome, and wonderful, and speaks to the world of Christ. We thank you for the good things you've been doing, even this week together. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me express thanks to all of you, and each of you, for the invitation to come and be here these days. It has meant more to me than it has meant to you. Uh, a special word of appreciation to Dr. Sanders. Uh, the hospitality that has been extended to me has just been exceptional. Uh, Alan, thank you. He worked on these services, contacted me uh, weeks ago, worked with, with me, and uh, it's no small thing on top of everything else to, to lead us tonight. So thank you very much. <clears throat> I just want to look at you again. You look good. Worked all day here tonight. I believe in you. I believe the Lord has good things for you. I want to talk to you tonight really from two passages of Scripture, but the primary passage is Matthew chapter 17. Towards the end, and you'll be want to watch for this because you'll know we'll be close to the end, we're going to look at a verse from 2 Corinthians. 
But primarily, I want to talk to you out of Matthew chapter 17. It was a warm and uh, calm August night when a woman named Rita Ratchin was driving her car along Ohio Route 12 on her way to her home in the town of Fostoria, Ohio, a town of about 15, 20,000 people. Rita is the mother of four, the grandmother of nine, and as she was driving just at dusk out on that country road, as she came around the corner, the headlights from her car reflected off the side of a soybean storage tank, a soybean oil storage tank on the farm, and she saw in that passing moment the image of Jesus Christ on the side of that tank. She didn't tell a soul for four days. But after four days, she took one of her lifelong friends, a lady named Dorothy Droll, out on Route 12 at about the same time in the evening, and sure enough, as they came around that bend and the headlights of the car caught the side of that tank, Dorothy said, I see it. The next night, they brought another friend with them and repeated it again. Same time. Came around the corner and sure enough, this third woman saw the image of Christ on the side of that soybean oil storage tank. This third woman could not keep a secret. <laughs> she began to tell everybody the next day about what she had seen and that Dorothy had seen it the night before and that Rita had seen it earlier in the week. And so the procession of cars started. First a few cars, 10, 15, then 50, then a 100 cars, then a 1,000 cars. And in the procession one night was a reporter and a team from Time magazine. And they did a story on this image of Jesus that had appeared out on Route 12, outside of Fostoria, Ohio. I was born in Ohio. My wife is from Ohio. And her family lives not too far from where this happened. And so, not long ago, I was in conversation with her mother. And I said, did you ever hear about that sighting outside of Fostoria where people were seeing Jesus on the side of that tank? She said, oh, yes, I went to see it. I said, you did? Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. What did you see? She said, well, I took my friend Elaine and began telling me a lot of that stuff I didn't even want to know. But she said, I mean, I found out where they ate, what Elaine had, what she had, the whole thing. But anyway, they got over there, she said, and they were pulling up. And sure enough, this line of cars and people were pulling off and then walking up to the farm. So she said, we pulled off and got out of the car. And she said, I was walking up with Elaine toward the farm. And she said, suddenly, I got, a, I got to where I could see the tank. And I said out loud, I see it. And Elaine said, where? And I said, on the side of the tank. And she said, just as I said that, a gentleman who had been up there was walking back. And he said, oh, no, lady, it's on the other side. Such is the power of suggestion. Every once in a while, we hear or read a story of someone seeing an image like that. Somewhere out here, I think New Mexico, a year or two ago, there, there was on a pane of glass the, the, the picture of uh, uh, Mary that would, would appear about once a month there. And people would go and make pilgrimage. Now, I don't know what you do with those kinds of things. Some people obviously just dismiss them out of hand as nothing. 
Others just reserve judgment. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know what to think. And obviously, some believe. Regardless of what position you take, I think that experience and similar experiences tell us that there is deep within the heart, the mind, the psyche, the spirit of people, there is a deep, latent desire to see Jesus. We know that faith is the evidence of things not seen. But boy, I'd like to see. <laughs> well, the good news is that God has done something better than etch an image on the side of a soybean oil tank on Route 12 in Ohio. He may have done that, but He's done something better than that. For God has given us this book. And I understand that you can't open the book and find a photograph. You can't turn and there's an oil painting of what Jesus looked like. But as you read and study and listen, there are countless word pictures, pen portraits of what Jesus was really like. And we're told in this 17th chapter of Matthew of a moment when the appearance of Jesus was so dramatic that it made a forever impression on those who saw it. They never got over that moment when they saw Jesus in a way they had never seen Him before and never really saw Him like that again. Matthew, Mark, Luke all tell us about this event. And uh, the story we look at tonight is this one from Matthew. Chapter 17. But let's start thinking a little bit first about chapter 16. The details are these. For a week or so, Jesus and his disciples had been in the area around Mount Hermon, northern uh, Israel, in that kind of wedge of land between what is Syria and Lebanon. And they'd been there on a kind of spiritual retreat, one of four such retreats described in the Gospels. And as they're making their way north, they go through this town called Caesarea Philippi. And you know, perhaps, what happened there. It's in that setting where Jesus, in conversation with his disciples, say, what, what, what do people say? Who do people say that I am? And so that starts the dialogue. And it is that moment when Peter, impetuous, bold Peter, says, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. It is a beautiful, wonderful affirmation of who Jesus is. And Jesus affirms that it's not flesh and blood that revealed that, but my Father in heaven. That's a very significant moment. But what follows that moment in chapter 16 is also quite significant because the Scripture says that Jesus then began to tell His disciples, and the, the Scripture seems to indicate it is a repeated telling, that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and on the third day be raised. Chapter 16, verse 21. Well, when he introduces that to the conversation, Peter impulsively says, now, that will never happen. And Jesus then enters into this rather stern interchange with Peter where he says, get out of my sight. You do not want the things of God. The things of man. Strong words between friends. What I want to suggest is that by the time you get chapter 17, there was probably a bit of distance in the group. A little bit of wondering. 
They're trying to process both what Jesus is telling them over and over about him, the fact he's going to die, and then the strong rebuke of Peter. So all that's background. And then chapter 17 uh, opens with these words. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. It would have taken them all day, maybe ten hours, to walk up to one of the three peaks at Mount Hermon. But when they were there, as they began to pray, the Scripture says that Jesus was transfigured. His appearance was changed. That's what that means. His appearance was changed. There was a metamorphosis, and they saw him as one who was indeed Son of God and Son of Man. What Peter had confessed a week before now became a visual reality to them, and they saw him. The vision had a transforming impact on them, and they too were changed in that moment. That's always the case when you really get a deep serious, personal look at Christ. If you ever see Jesus, it, it does something for you. I mean, think back to the Old Testament. It, 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 just Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up. Man, it was a pivotal moment in his life. He got a vision of himself and the whole thing. So they see Jesus transfigured before them. And they're changed. So tonight, I want at least in part for us to share that vision. Because I think the vision has significance for the disciples. It was a moment that had significance for Jesus. But I think it's also a moment that can have significance for us today. It may very well be that Jesus has come, obviously, to reveal God to us, but I think perhaps to give us a glimpse of what man Time can be as well. That there is perhaps a metamorphosis available for you. That you can be so changed in the inner person that when the headlights of someone else's life shines on you, they see Jesus. Wow. A couple of observations. First of all, let's think about the past significance. What difference does this make to the disciples? What did it mean to Jesus? And then we're going to look at what does it mean for us. In that moment of transfiguration, the deity of Jesus, His resplendent glory, His numinous otherness, that, that nature of God that just is part God and nothing else, all of that suddenly shone forth through His humanity. Now, let's make a couple of observations. Jesus takes up on the mountain three out of the twelve. Which means he leaves nine at the bottom. Why did he take three? Why did he take these three? What kept the other nine from seeing that vision? Which group do you want to be in? Evidently, there was something about Peter that just saw Jesus more clearly. He's the one that made the confession. Something about James that caused him to follow Jesus more nearly. And something 
obviously about John that loved him more dearly. And Jesus takes those three, only those three, and sequesters them for this once-in-a-lifetime vision of Christ. Evidently, not every follower sees Jesus in the same way, or maybe comprehends as fully the claims of Christ on our life. Among the disciples, there are those that were close, but there are these that were closer. And every time I think about that inner circle of Peter, James, and John, I ask myself the question, do I want to live in such a way as to be close enough to not miss anything God has for me? If there is distance between you and God, the question is, who moved? Because the Scripture says, if you draw nigh to Him, He will draw nigh to you. I want you to know tonight, you can have all of God you want. You can get as close to God as you want to get. You can, you can get everything God has for you, if you will, have that depth of devotion and commitment and love and loyalty and attentiveness to the disciples, or to, to Jesus as these disciples had. In the heart of London, there is a spot called Trafalgar Square. It's a, it's a big public area, lots of historic monuments. And in the middle of Trafalgar Square, there is a large, tall column called Nelson's Column. Uh, it's a rather grand thing. At the top of the column, and I don't know even how tall it is, is a statue of Admiral Lord Nelson, who won a great naval battle at Trafalgar. And in honor of that, they put him up on this pedestal and have this great, great statue of him. The only problem is, when you're at ground level, you have no idea who's up there. You can't see. You've got to read a little plaque there. But you don't, you don't know what he looks like. You can't see him. You have no sense of whether he's tall or short or thin or fat or anything else. So in 1948, to remedy that, the government of Great Britain created a exact likeness of that statue and put it down at street level. So you can walk as close to it as you want. Jesus said, it's good for you if I go away, because if I go away, another comforter will come who will be with you and will be in you. You can have all of Jesus you want if you'll just take it. God is not stingy with Himself. So, Jesus takes these three and uh, takes them up on the mountain. Now, there are three occasions in the New Testament when Jesus does a similar thing. Three times, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and separates them out. The first time is described in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus is called by the synagogue ruler, Jairus, to heal his daughter. And when they get to the house, everybody's weeping because they say the daughter has died. Jesus said she hasn't died. She's sleeping. They don't believe him. So he takes Jairus and his wife and he takes Peter, James, and John and they go in and Jesus raises this girl from the dead. Powerful moment. Only Peter, James, and John of the disciples saw it. And at the end of that story, the Scripture says Jesus charged them not to tell anyone. But they have clearly seen that Jesus is the Lord over life and death. They know it. That's the first time he has sequestered them. The third time is in the Garden of Gethsemane. When they go in, nine say, he takes them a little further in. Watch with me. And they are there before they fall asleep, watching as Jesus 
comes to grips with his own death. Now, isn't this interesting? They know because they've seen he has the power of life and death, and yet he is saying, not my will, but thy will. And so he's submitting to death so that he might, in fact, become the death of death itself. So those are the two, and in the middle of those two is this moment. And they've had a vision of him. It's a remarkable, remarkable moment. So, the first observation is that the transfiguration of Jesus is given to those who follow him closely enough. Second, Matthew, in his telling of the story, says that they went up on the mountain. But if you read the same story from Luke, Luke gives us another added insight into the story. This is what Luke says. He, Jesus, took Peter, John, James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as the flash of lightning. What Luke has added is that they were there praying. It wasn't the mountain that made the difference. It was the prayer that made the difference. It was that moment of deep communion. Years ago, I don't know when it was published, maybe 20 years ago. Some, some of you may know Richard Foster's first book, Celebration of Discipline. Uh, and one of the things he says in that book is that um, that superficiality is kind of the curse of the age. I mean, we live in an instant society. and Everybody wants to be uh, uh, fully um, appropriate, fully everything that they have coming to them without paying the price. And, and at one point in the book he says, the desperate need today is not for a great number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for a greater number of deep people. People who will just pay the price. The greatest vision these disciples ever had of Jesus was when that inner circle got away to pray. There's a lesson in that for us. If we want to see Jesus, we have to focus ourselves. We have to pay the price to stay close and pray and, and open ourselves to that. Without that kind of devotion, we join the nine at the bottom of the hill. Followers of Jesus, good, godly men, but they miss the vision. Scripture also says that in this moment apart, this moment alone with Jesus, quote, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. The word that's used here to describe that, that change is the word from which we get metamorphosis. There was a change. Now, the Greek language has another word, metaschema, that, that talks about a change of appearance, but not a change of kind of inner essence. That's not the word used. It, it's this inner change that became evident. So the picture is that it's not a spotlight that's shining on Jesus. It is rather this radiance that shines out of Jesus so that you see who he really is. It's not that Jesus put on a disguise in that moment and acted like God. He showed them that he was God. They needed to know that. And that vision transformed them. We're told that his face shone like the sun. Sixty years later, John, the last of the twelve, exiled out on the Isle of Patmos, writing, says, I turned and looked at him, and his face looked like the sun shining. He never forgot it. Reminded of an occasion in the Old Testament where Moses is summoned to another mountaintop, to encounter God, Mount Sinai, 
The book of Exodus tells the story. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, the Ten Commandments, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Remember, he had to cover his face. It was so radiant. Now, over time, that faded because it was a reflected radiance in Moses' case. But with Jesus, it is this inner radiance from within. And the Scripture tells us that not only did Jesus' face shine, but his clothes as well. It's very interesting. When you read all three accounts, you can almost sense the Gospel writers scrambling to find words to describe what is just beyond description. Luke uses a word that's only used one time in all the Bible, and he uses it here, and it's a word that means flashing like lightning. Use your own imagination. A welder's arc, the spark between a positive and negative pole. There was this flash. Powerful. Mark says an interesting thing. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Couldn't get over how white it was. They're straining to describe what they saw, and they can't quite get it done. But it was a remarkable moment. Peter, years later, writing in Second Peter, says this, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty when we were on the sacred mountain. I'll tell you, a person that's had an encounter and seen Christ is never the same. Peter says, I was an eyewitness. I saw him. I heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. All of us, each of us, needs a moment in our lives, an experience which becomes an anchor for us, a, a quarry for us, so that when the winds blow and the storms come, our anchor is set in this Realization that Jesus is who He says He is. And my faith is in Him. A rock we can stand on and draw strength from. It was that moment for Peter and John and James. They had seen Him. And I think when Peter gets filled with the Spirit and moves out against the hostile crowd, he is void by this sense of knowing for sure that Jesus is who He said He was. I think when they came to get James, the first to be martyred, there must have been some sense of peace even in the midst of that because he'd seen it and it made a difference. So it's a moment of great significance for the disciples. They never got over it. But I think it's also a moment of significance for Jesus. In his mind, Jesus is already set on the last trip to Jerusalem. He's trying to prepare the disciples of that. And in that moment when he... He's, he's transfigured. It must have reminded him of the glory from which he came and the glory to which he was going back. And the Scripture tells us there in Matthew that he is joined in that moment by two individuals. Remember that? Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets. Luke tells us what they talked about. This is what Luke says. They spoke about his, Jesus, they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. The word for departure in that verse is very interesting. It is the word ekhodos, from which we get exodus. They talked about his way out. Can you get the sense of Moses, who led the first exodus, talking now to Jesus about his exodus and all the things foreshadowed in that 
become fulfilled. The sacrificial lamb, the deliverance, the freedom, all of that. It would have been a moment, I think, that steadied the very heart and mind of Christ as well. So it's a moment for the disciples. A moment for Jesus. But this would be simply a kind of historic exercise if that's all we would talk about. I wonder if there is something about us in this story. I think there is. I've sometimes wondered if there was a glow, a divine kind of glow, that was part of human life in the garden before the fall. Let us make them in our own image. But the fall came and that image of God, that that radiance, that glory was marred as Satan scribbles his graffiti over God's handiwork. And Christ comes then to restore that. I want to suggest to you tonight that this event says to us that we too can experience a metamorphosis, a change. Is it possible that God could, in fact, ignite within us a living spiritual flame, if you will, which transforms our inner nature and shows forth then through our outer nature so that people, when they see the church, they see Jesus. Remember, people are hungry to see Jesus. Well, what was it that John the Baptist said? I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Where does the radiance of the inner splendor come from? Is it too much to suggest that it is, in fact, the baptism of the Holy Spirit through the work of entire sanctification which brings about this transfiguration of our life? I mean, am I reading into the passage more than just listening to it? Well, you're going to have to be the judge of that. But I do recall the Apostle Paul uses the very same word that was used of Jesus, metamorphosized, to describe what happens to us. 2 Corinthians 3:18. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed, there's the word, are being metamorphosized into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, what do you think of? What's the first thing that enters your mind when you hear the word metamorphosis? Me too. I think of that change that happens when a caterpillar turns into a a butterfly. Now, that would be a metamorphosis. Could we edit the tape at that point? When a spiny, bumpy, ugly, worm-like creature encases itself in a chrysalis, and in that moment there is a reordering of matter so that at the end comes forth this butterfly. There has been a metamorphosis. There has been a change. There has been a transfiguration. I'm saying to you that Paul uses that very word to describe what ought to happen in our life, and he says it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Wow. Can there be a transformation of our hearts 
so that we are changed from being in rebellion to God to being fully devoted to Jesus? Can there be a transformation of our conscience so that we're not dull to what is right and wrong and we're sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Can there be a transformation of our will so that we can pray, not my will, but thy will? Can there be a reordering of our priorities so that it's not me first, but thee first? How about our affections transformed to where we love God with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and spirit? Can there be such a powerful transfiguration of our lives that our homes are changed, our churches are changed, and the world sees in this change the presence and the person of Jesus? I mentioned just a moment ago Paul's reference there in 2 Corinthians. Let me read that verse again, but expand the reading to get the context. Paul is talking about the fact that many people fail to see the glory of God because their eyes are veiled. But then he gives us this word of assurance, quote, Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory, the Lord's glory, are being transformed, metamorphosized, into His likeness with an ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I believe that God would do for us, in some measure, a work on the inner person that reorders who we are, that changes the essence of who we are. Are we still human? Yes. Are we still vulnerable and frail? Yes. But have we been changed? Has the Old Testament promise, I'll put within them a new heart. How does that happen? Unless God transfigures us. Is it the desire of your life to really be like Jesus? More than anything else. To be so close to Him that that if somebody goes with Him, I want to be in that number. You know, I just want to stay close. I want to walk in His footsteps. I want to hear His voice. I want to respond quickly and not hesitantly. I want it to be the desire of my life to be like Jesus. I have good news for you. God has made provision for that to happen. I believe God cannot just forgive you and leave you in bondage and all of that. But God can do a work on the inside that will then show on the outside. I hope that when people look and think about Nazarene Bible College, they say, you know, there is something different with that crowd. I mean, I don't know what it is, but I just sense the presence of God. Let's sing about that a moment, and then we're going to pray. It's an old song, but I don't know of one that says it any better. Would you stand and sing? I have one deep, supreme desire that I may be like Jesus.